0: As Americans, let us never forget the nearly 2,500 souls and compatriots who perished on 9-11-2001. There have been thousands of American military personnel that have given their lives um, on freedom's altar since that fateful day. But now as Christians, let us not forget the tens of thousands of souls... That through war have gone into a Christless eternity let us remember that Jesus said lift up your eyes for the fields are white unto harvest and so there are souls that are perishing and going into eternity and we need to remember them as well today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 um, but before we get there How many of you have ever heard of the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah? All right. That comes as a result of the prophecy that is in Daniel chapter 8. Now, not at that time, but several hundred years later, as the Jewish revolt through the Maccabee family um, were able to expel the Greeks from Jerusalem, uh, from Israel, then they purified the temple. And the story goes that as they wanted to rededicate the temple, that one of the things they needed to do was to light the menorah. And uh, you had to have oil to do that, but because of the pressure of war, uh, they didn't have enough oil to last uh, for the, the time period of purification, which was seven or eight days. They only had enough oil for one day. But by faith, they went ahead and they went through the purification ceremony and rededicated the temple. And that oil, miraculously, according to Jewish tradition, lasted then for the period of purification of eight days. And that's why you have Hanukkah being celebrated each year, is to remember the great sacrifice that it was for their people to Purge out the the Greeks and the desecration that uh, the, the leader at that time we 're going to go through his name today had brought upon the temple and so it 's uh, known as the festival of lights, and uh, we do have one reference to it in the Gospel of John chapter ten where Jesus was at the feast of dedication when it was winter, and so this uh, the Jewish calendar obviously is different than our Gregorian calendar. Um, but the temple on the Gregorian calendar would have been rededicated on Christmas Day in 165 uh, B.C. Um, so maybe that helps you understand a little bit why Jewish people don't necessarily like Christmas. All right, because of that association of, of the, the defilement of the temple and it had to be... Uh, dedicated on that particular day. Now that that changes according to the Jewish calendar so they don't always stay in sync. And so it is observed for eight nights and days and uh, the Hebrew month is uh, Kislev in the Hebrew calendar. And uh, so there's all kinds of things that the Jewish people have done to celebrate this day. The the little dreidel, the spinning top, all right, have you ever seen those? That was created at this time as well. Uh, to celebrate that. Well, let us learn from Daniel chapter 8 in this amazing prophecy that the troubles that the Jewish people went through under the Greek dominion were actually prophesied several hundred years in advance by Daniel the prophet. So in Daniel chapter 8, we're just going to Read the first few verses. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. All right. So this uh, title of this message is Daniel's second dream. Would you just for a second go back to chapter 7 and look with me um, at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. So here Daniel in chapter 7 is asleep. In chapter 8, uh, it's more like he's having a vision, uh, but we still call it a dream or a vision based upon those words being used together in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, this is two years later. And so remember, the material in the book of Daniel is not laid out in a linear line from point A to point B saying, This is this year, this is next month, next year, next month. It's it's not on a chronological timeline. Uh, Many times when you read the Bible, and here's another Bible study help for you, is that the material is not laid out chronologically. Now, how many of you know that you can buy a Bible that is laid out chronologically? It's called the Chronological Bible. Did you know you can do that? And it'll lay out chapters and verses from different sections of the scripture. So if you want to read it from day one, all right, to the end, then you can read it chronologically. But so Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 7 actually happened after Daniel chapter 5, as far as on a timeline is concerned. All right. So this is still under the Babylonian kingdom when Daniel's having these visions. So this is two years uh, past since he had the vision in chapter 7. All right, and so he says that in verse 1. Verse 2, And in a vision it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. So, He's most likely being transported in his vision to a city where the king would maybe go to winter or to go to vacation. Maybe it was a summer palace, but he's over. This is in modern day Iran. So this is not happening in Babylon. Now, what's significant about this city is this is where Nehemiah, who rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. This is where he lived. This is also where Queen Esther, uh, who was the queen under Artaxerxes, um, the Persian king um, that the Greeks would begin pressuring, um, this is where she is from as well. And so the province of Elium. All right, verse 3. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there, behold, there stood before uh, the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to all his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, and he goat came from the west over the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran at him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he goat grew very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And f- for it, or from it, came up four notable ones, or horns, toward the four winds of heaven. So, what an interesting vision or a dream. All right, let's keep reading because we go down through verse 14 to have the end of the dream. All right, now out of one of them came forth a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land or the beautiful land. And it grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea he himself magnified even to the Prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down to the truth it cast down the truth to the ground, and it continued and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking to another a saint and said unto certain saint who spoke how long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled under foot and he said unto me 2300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed so that's the end of the dream What does all of that mean? Well, as we shared with you last week, you keep reading. Because in chapter 7, we had this vision. We didn't understand it. All of these terrible looking beasts and we didn't know what they meant unless God gave the interpretation. So as we keep reading now, we will be informed. And this is the ministry of Prophecy, this is God revealing to us so we can know what's going to take place in the future. So let's keep reading and we'll find out what all of these symbols mean. Verse 15 And it came to pass when I, even I Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eulai. Uh, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for the time of the end shall be the vision. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee to know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, these are the kings of Media and... All right. So the ram, the animal. What kingdom is this? The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So now we know that we're having been identified. If you go back to chapter 2, this is the second kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue. This is the second kingdom in chapter 7 from last week. So now further clarification is given to us that this is the second kingdom. It's the Medes and the Persians, the ram. All right, now verse 21. And the rough goat, or the shaggy goat, is the king of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the, what, first king. All right, so how many of you believe in unicorns? All right. Well, here's a goat anyway, and he's got this one horn between his eyes, and it's very prominent. And this is the first king. All right, so this is the kingdom of? Greece. Now, this is the third kingdom. All right, so now just a little bit, uh, if you weren't here last week, so maybe you are going to miss out on some, but last week as we were talking about the ruler that appears in chapter seven, we labeled him the Antichrist, he comes from the fourth kingdom. Which kingdom? Fourth kingdom. Today, we're going to see an individual coming from the third kingdom. But they're not the same. But yet there is some symbolism or typology that will help us understand as we go through the message. All right, so we have two kingdoms. Which kingdoms are they? The Persian and the Greek, all right? And so, now being broken, whereas four stood upon it, for four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his own power. And so the horn is that first king. All right, now look at verse 23. In the latter time of their kingdom, when their transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and continue and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Verse 25. And through his policy also he shall cause deceit to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which is told, is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision. For it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. And afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So what we're going to see from verse 23 to verse 27 is that there was a historical figure that came. On the scene. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. Epiphanes means the great, right, the glorious one. And so he set himself up to be this wonderful person. And Antiochus fulfills the description that's in this passage. Now we also know from history that the Greeks defeated the Persians. So what you have here in front of you is Daniel living in the late 6th century prophesying about what will happen in the 3rd century. So 200 years in front of him. If you listen to the History Channel or the Smithsonian, Uh, here's how they interpret this. Daniel chapter 8 is so accurate in its detail that what happened in human history could only have been written in Daniel 8 by somebody who lived after the Greeks defeated the Persians. There's no way that the... ...man who's claiming to be Daniel... ...could have known such detail. Because... ...as the Greeks came... ...and defeated the Persians... ...Alexander the Great... ...the first king... ...in the moment of his glory... ...was cut off. In the year 335... ...he swept through the Middle East... ...he defeated the Persians... uh, ...wiped them off... ...the face of the map... ...and then he continued on to India where he fought against the indians and their uh, mighty war elephants and he defeated them as well and his men said Alexander how much further are we going to go all right we're tired so he's like okay we need some r and r so they head back to the middle east they get back into babylon and they're congratulating themselves over their victories and alexander the great is celebrating this and he catches a fever and about three days later, he's dead at the age of 33. And so there's the, the liberal critic looks at this and says, Ah, see, there's, there's no way that that could have been given in advance. Only somebody who lived to actually see that could have written that down. Right? So that's how the liberal interpretation of Daniel chapter 8 uh, is presented. As a matter of fact, they, they say that the entire Old Testament was written by the Jewish people during the Babylonian captivity or after. All right? Well, there's only one problem from archaeology in 1947. A little um, Bedouin shepherd boy in the south of Israel in the Judean desert threw a rock into a cave one day to see how deep it was. And uh, he heard something break. He's like, hmm, wonder what that was. So uh, he got a torch, and he scampered down in there, and he saw all kinds of documents. And then word got out, and then uh, Europeans came through, and treasure hunters came through. These were priceless documents that had been preserved by the desert climate. And they were intact scrolls, and there were thousands of them. They became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in 1947. Um, And copies of them had the entire book of Daniel predating the liberal theory that the Jews wrote them during the Babylonian captivity. So archaeology totally wipes away that argument. So it's impossible, the liberal argument, to stand up to scientific endeavors all right so we know the book of Daniel was written in advance 200 years before these historical events took place what we're going to do today is put this big idea in your mind you can trust God because of fulfilled prophecy God said to Daniel Daniel the Greeks were going to come and defeat the Persians. The notable first Greek king is going to celebrate and be cut off in the middle of his celebration. And his kingdom will be divided into four sections. And out of those four sections, then there will be another king that arises, verse 23, and persecutes the Holy Land and the holy people. All of these details have taken place in history, and God fulfilled prophecy. And it's so amazing that the liberal, unbelieving scholar looks at it and says, yes, that is accurate, that's exactly what happened in history, but there's no way that that could have been. They don't believe that there's a God in heaven who's in charge of the nations and who knows the future. So let's go through today and look at this, all right? Uh, So liberals deny the inspiration of this chapter because it's too accurate. Now, here's something else that's very interesting. The book of Daniel was written in two languages. I mentioned this to you before. Do you remember what they are? Hebrew Hebrew and Aramaic. The first two chapters were written in Hebrew. But then chapters uh, 3 through 7 are written in Aramaic for a wider audience, for the Gentile people. Now it switches back here in chapter 8 to Hebrew. Why? Well, we mentioned to you last week the whole book of Daniel takes this big transmission, all right? It changes gears. And it tells the Jewish people what's going to happen to them in the future. So what's going to happen to Israel? Well, we're going to find out at the end of the chapter that there's going to be this Greek king that's going to cause a lot of problems for them. And this is like I was sharing in the introduction. The conclusion of all of this is how we get Hanukkah. And so we're still celebrating this today, but the Greek language spread throughout the world, and that's how we get our New Testament, that's how we get our Bibles, is through the Greek language. So, this is still impacting us today as we live, all right? So some pretty amazing details that go through this. So the Jewish people uh, are told, this is what's going to happen to your nation. All right, now, here's just uh, something that's a little rabbit trail for a second and have some fun with this. How many angels are named in the Bible? Anybody know? Yeah, two holy angels are named. They're Michael and Gabriel, who's mentioned here. Uh, Gabriel shows up again where? In the New Testament, announcing the birth of Jesus. All right. Now, there is a third angel that's mentioned, but he's evil, Lucifer. All right? And so those are the only angels that are mentioned in the Scripture. So if you hear some religious person uh, talking and naming all kinds of angels, be a little creeped out, All right. because uh, they're just not named in Scripture. Okay. So those are the only three. So that was just a, a little digression there. All right, so the revelation then. Of Daniel's dream here is it's given to us we really don't understand it I mean unless God interpreted it to us we would not know what this meant all right so let's go to the interpretation here so we can remember we can trust God because prophecy is fulfilled all right so the kingdoms here that are in the interpretation they are Persia and Greece and then Alexander the Great the general uh, dies and his kingdom is divided into four sections. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Mark Antony and Cleopatra? All right. Um, Alexander the Great founded what city in Egypt? Alexandria. And that is where Cleopatra was. And so Cleopatra was queen of one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. And then Mark Antony from the Roman Empire comes in and conquers that and then she becomes his queen, all right? So Romans will come in at the end of the story. But then how many of you have heard of the Seleucid Empire, all right? So that is one of the four, and then uh, Greece was another section, and then Turkey uh, and Iran and Armenia, that was another division. And so those were the four divisions of the Greek Empire. So these are are what's taking place. And so the interpretation of the dream is this. Daniel, the ram is Persia. It's defeated by the goat, which is Greece. The goat has a notable horn between its eyes. The horn is snapped off. In other words, the king is cut off in his glory. All right. So that's what happens. And then in his place, then four different kings or kingdoms arise. All right. So that takes us through the end of verse 22. Now being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So that last phrase in verse 22 means this is God's doing. God is working in the affairs of, Of human history, he's working in nations. Please don't think that God is not working in the nations of the world today because he definitely is. Everything that's happening is marching to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy where the king, kingdom of Israel, and the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back and literally rule on this earth. And we know that and we can be assured of that because of the fulfilled prophecy here in Daniel chapter 8. It was told several hundred years in advance and it happened just as God said it would. All right, but now what we need to do is we need to look here at verses 23 through 27 because this is probably the hardest part of the chapter. And what we're going to see is this ruler who comes out of one of the four kingdoms is going to press against the people of Israel, and he's going to do certain things to them, all right? So let's look at verses 23 through 27 again. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So this is someone other than the horn that's broken, all right? This is someone from that kingdom, but he's a different, he's a newer king. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and continue and shall destroy the mighty and the what? Who are the holy people? They're the Jews. All right. So in history, was there a Greek king who destroyed the Jewish people? Yes, there was. He showed up in the year 175 B.C. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he hated the Jewish people. And so here's some of the things that the scripture says that he would do. All right. He's going to prosper. But he's going to destroy wonderfully. He's going to be a liar. His policies are of deceit. He's going to destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, he also shall cause deceit to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. Do you know who gave himself the name Epiphanes? It was Antiochus. You know what the rest of society of the world called him at the time? Antiochus the madman, but he named himself Epiphanes, which means the great one. And so he magnifies, he thinks it's so true of himself. And by peace he shall destroy many, and he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which is told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days... And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So there are still some things that we don't understand from the vision. And we'll mention some of those, all right? Why would God allow a pagan king to trample down his own people? Beginning in 171, the Greeks uh, under Antiochus murdered the Jewish high priest on Ananias. And then they began to forbid the Jewish people from having sacrifices in the temple. And the Jews were so devout that they still wanted to do that, even though the threat of the king was great. And so they continued that. Antiochus came in and he killed a 100,000 Jews. And to top it off, to put insult to injury, to rub salt in the wound, he took a sow, a pig, and he slew it in the temple. And he went into the holiest of holies and he sacrificed it there on the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies, all right, to desecrate the the temple to totally subjugate the Jewish people. Just a a wicked, forceful, brutal king that this man was. Um, That was what you might say touching the electric third rail. And that got the Jewish people so upset that a revolt started against Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Maccabean brothers... Um, And so how many of you know that the uh, King James Bible, when it was written in 1611, contained the Apocrypha? Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. All right. What is the Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha is a group of historical Jewish books that have been passed down through Jewish history so that the Jews would know what happened to them. From the end of the Old Testament time period to the beginning of the New Testament, and so there's a couple of books in there written after the, the titled after the name of the Maccabean leaders, and it records for us in great detail the historical events that took place about how the Jews rose up in revolt and pushed the Greeks out of Israel and purified the temple. And so all of that is history. We know that, that that took place, and we know that what has happened has been fulfilled, all right? So Antiochus did all of these things, all right? He labeled himself in his own mind as being someone who's greater, all right? Um, he, so he's deceived against himself. He killed the high priest, which was like the prince of the people at the time. Uh, verse 25, And so he fulfilled all of these things. So you can go back and you can say, all right, Daniel 8, it's done with. So what? How does this apply to my life? All right, we'll talk about that, all right? But a little bit more work here. I want us to notice verse 23 and verse 25, and let's talk about these. And in the latter time of their kingdom. So we're toward the end of the Greek kingdom, all right? So that's verse 23. So about 100 years later, then the Greek kingdom came to an end. All right, but now look up here at verse 25. And through his policy also he shall cause deceit to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. And he also shall stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, verse 26, "...and the vision of the evening and the morning which is told is true, wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days." All right, so now here's a little bit of blending that's taking place. Antiochus Epiphanes was such a horrible king that when Daniel heard about it, he got sick to a stomach. And historically... That was his reputation. He was a wicked, murderous, horrible king, and the Jews just had to get rid of him at any cost. and they were able and willing to go against the world superpower at that time. and so they won. But Antiochus' Epiphanes as this wicked king, becomes a symbol or a foreshadowing. Of a future ruler, a future king, that we call today the Antichrist. So when you come into verse 25, there's this blending. There's this, what some people call a double fulfillment. Alright, so let's talk about double fulfillment for just a second. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah is before Jeremiah. Alright, we, we know Isaiah 9-6 because we sing it every year, all right, or we heard it being sung. Isaiah 9-6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. All right. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What's that come from? What do we know in, in contemporary culture? Handel's Messiah. All right. And who do we say that that person is? Jesus Christ. All right. But now look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it. With justice and with righteousness from henceforth, even forever. Now notice the last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts thinks this will happen? No, it's not what it says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All right. So Jesus was born. He claimed to be the son of David. Did he set up a Jewish kingdom? No, he did not. So for the prophecy to come true, then there has to be a double fulfillment of it. Because he was born, but yet he hasn't ruled. So there's a future aspect to Isaiah's prophecy. All right, let's go over to Luke chapter 1. Here comes Gabriel, the angel that gave Daniel his vision in Daniel chapter 8. This is what Gabriel tells Mary beginning in verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. All right, so even in the Christmas story, we accept the fact that the prophecies about his birth came true, but we also are willing to accept by faith that his kingdom is yet coming. So there's going to be a double fulfillment of that prophecy. So I think that's exactly what we have here at the end of Daniel chapter 8. In verse 23, it's clearly Antiochus. But in verses 25 and 26, this historical figure called Antiochus Epiphanes is such a wonderful type of the Antichrist that there's some foreshadowing of the Antichrist that you'll be able to tell what the Antichrist is like by looking at Antiochus Epiphanes. So what is the Antichrist going to do in the future? Well, he's going to set up an image of himself in a restored Jewish temple. And he will cause all other worship to cease except worship of himself. He will persecute the holy people. He will have policies of deceit. And he'll have a time period of peace. But then he'll break his covenant because he's a liar. And he'll break his covenant with Israel and then he'll persecute Israel. So these are things that Antiochus Epiphanes did. But these are also things that a future Antichrist will do. There's some foreshadowing of that. All right. So now let's just wrap this up. How does this apply to our lives today? All right, I want you to look at Daniel 8.26. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is what? It's true. Look, I understand that people who don't believe look at the Bible and say, that's a bunch of mythology. you, You really shouldn't depend upon it. I mean, just that's how they live, all right? That's the way that they look at the Bible. Um, By the way, do you want a, a little hint on how you could witness to people who don't believe in the Bible? Did you know that you don't have to believe in the Bible to be a Christian? Did you know that? You have to believe in Jesus, not the Bible. So here's how you do that. Someone comes to you and says, ah, that Bible, that's just a bunch of mythology. And, uh, you know, I I can be a, uh, you know, pretty good person. I'm okay. Well, then you say, okay, thank you for sharing your opinion. Now, I'm just curious. What do you think the theme of the Bible is? What's the one theme of the Bible? you'll usually get an answer like this. Well, you know, it just tells us how to be a good person. Then you can say, Wow, that's what I was afraid of. You don't know what the central message of the Bible is. Can I share with you what the central unifying theme of the Bible is? Now they're faced with a dilemma. Well, am I going to be the arrogant and the proud one who says, no, I don't want to consider your viewpoint"? Or they're going to say, how am I wrong? Share it with me. And then you share with them that Jesus Christ came to pay for sins, to die for sins. And just let the Holy Spirit work in their life. They don't need to believe the Bible. They need to believe Jesus. So that's just a a little strategy on how you can share the gospel with somebody who says, you know, I'm going to shut you down right now. I don't believe the Bible. Okay, great. Let me know. What do you think the message of the Bible is? And then you just go from there. All right. Now, let's look at this and uh, go over to Revelation chapter 22, the last book of the Bible. Look with me at verse 20. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Do you know what a synonym is for the word amen? True. Truly true. So, Gabriel told Daniel... Seal up the vision. For the vision of the morning and the evening, it is true. What is the book of Revelation? It's a book of prophecy. And Jesus says this about his prophecy. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Amen means it's true. Many years ago, uh, my mother had a daycare in her home. And um, when I was a little boy, I played with those children. And uh, a guy that's my age, so he's probably 54 right now, his name is Stephen, his parents uh, dropped him off and my parents began a great friendship with them. They did things together all the time. And uh, my parents shared the gospel with them frequently. Well, one day... Uh, there was a neighbor boy that was under my mom's care that lived about a block away. And that mother called and said, would you be able to walk him over here to my house because something's happened where I can't get over to pick him up. So my mom takes myself and Stephen and this other boy, Eric, over to Eric's house. And so now Stephen and myself and my mom, there's, so there's nobody at our home. Well, Stephen's dad, Paul, gets off work, comes over to the house to pick up his son, he knocks on the door, there's nobody there, this is really unusual, this has never happened before, this is out of place, doors unlocked, comes in, hello, anybody here, Stephen, daddy's here, nothing, then the panic sets in, Stephen! Gladys, Brent, anybody here? And about this time, as he's all worked up in a frenzy, my mom comes walking through the door with myself and my friend Stephen, and Paul looks at her and says, no, don't ever do that to me again. I thought that Jesus thing where he was coming back happened, okay? As he was terrified that the resurrection had taken place and that he was left behind, all right? And... Um, So he was under conviction by the Holy Spirit that he needed to be a believer. Now, whether he ever became a believer, I don't know, all right? But Jesus says, surely I am coming. Folks, it's going to happen. Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. It's true. That's what the word amen means. It's true. So what should we gain from all of this today? Well, you should gain a different level of trust in who God is. He's made certain predictions, prophecies, that Jesus Christ is going to return, that there's going to be a resurrection out of the grave. How do we know that that's going to take place? Well, one of the greatest assurances that we can have that that will happen is the historical record of what took place in Daniel chapter 8. God sent the the angel Gabriel to tell Daniel, this is what's going to happen to the Jewish people. And it happened. And we know it happened. And we're even still celebrating those historical events today. The Jewish people are still celebrating Hanukkah. And so it's still relevant to their lives. Well, it's still relevant to our lives. We should have all that much more confidence, faith, and trust in God. Because what he says is true. Are you ready for his return? If Jesus Christ were to come back, would you be like that worried father? Or would you have peace in your heart? And say, I know that if the Lord returns, I'll be with him. Are you ready? Do you have that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, on a practical level, governing officials should learn from this passage. And I'm just going to quote to you from one of the authors here. This is what he says about human government. The real worth of such empires is to be measured not in the terms of size or wealth or culture or military power, but in terms of justice, fair play, dignity, and human freedom. When judged by the requirements of the coming kingdom, all earthly rulers and their kingdoms stand condemned. And that was by... um, D.S. Russell in his uh, Bible study on the book of Daniel. Look, this is just a Californian speaking here. I think Sacramento views us as their servants. All right, government uh, is not for the people. The people are for the government. But righteousness in government is for the protection and the well-being of people. What did Antiochus Epiphanes do as a ruler? He used and abused people. And so there's a warning for any governing official. Don't abuse people. God has entrusted you with their welfare, with their safety, with their freedom. Hold that in high esteem. Now, you're going to have to give an account because he's coming one day. Are you ready to give an account for your stewardship of governance? So think about what's going on in our own state. Do we continue voting for the people who are doing these things to us? I don't know. You have to make that call. I mean, I can't in good conscience. It's just my personal opinion. But I don't want to make this message a political message. But rather, a personal message for you such detail secular historians look at it and they go bonkers it's way too accurate well they tried to deny it but then archaeology proved their theory wrong so they're faced with a dilemma what do you do with the truth that the book of Daniel was written hundreds of years before it happened What do you do with this God who made these predictions and then fulfilled them? What is your relationship with Him? Because that very same God sent His Son. His Son fulfilled so many prophecies, over 300 just in His birth. But His Son said, I'm going to my Father. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you might be also. Are you ready for his prophecies of his return? He's coming to set up his kingdom. It's true. Now, you may not believe the Bible is true, but I'm going to just tell you something about God God cannot lie. And he's promised you the gift of eternal life. And that's where my confidence is right there, folks. In a God who promised me eternal life. And at the age of 20, I received that gift. I wondered. And then he gave me that verse. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. So it wasn't based upon my strength to to believe it, but rather based and rooted and grounded in the character of a God who cannot lie. He's promised it. So how do we know the prophecies for your own individual destiny? God has said believers who have experienced repentance and faith, they spend eternity with him. But those who are unbelieving are cast into the lake of fire. So how do we know the truth of those two destinies? Because God has spoken it. Are you ready for eternity? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Such wonderful news, folks. Jesus Christ spread out his arms and said, I love you this much. Believe on him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.